I've had a request or two to uh, uh, go through this one more time, and with your indulgence, I'll try to do so. This is entitled AA and the Higher Power. God, in his wisdom, selected this group of men and women to be the purveyors of goodness. In selecting them through whom to bring about this phenomenon, he went not to the proud, the mighty, the famous, or the brilliant. He went right to the drunkard, the so-called weakling of the world. Well might he have said to us, Unto your weak and feeble hands I entrust a power beyond estimate. To you has been given that which has been denied the most learned of your fellows, not to scientists or statesmen, not to wives or mothers, not even to priests or ministers, have I given this gift of healing other alcoholics, which I entrust to you. It must be used unselfishly. It carries with it grave responsibilities. No day may be too long. No demand upon your time can be too urgent. No case too pitiful. No task too hard. And no effort too great. It must be used with tolerance, for I have restricted its application to no race, no creed, and no denomination. Personal criticism you must expect. A lack of appreciation will be common. Ridicule will be your lot. Your motives will be misjudged, misjudged. And you must be prepared for adversity. For what you call adversity is the ladder we must use to ascend the rungs towards spiritual perfection. You are not selected because of your exceptional talent, and be careful always not to ascribe the personal superiority, that to which you can lay claim only by virtue of my gift to you. If I had wanted scholarly men to complete the mission, I would have given the power to the physician and the scientist. If I had wanted eloquent men, many would be anxious for the assignment. For talk is the easiest used of all talents which I have endowed mankind. If I had wanted learned men, the world is full of men better qualified than you who would have been available. You were selected because you were the outcasts of the world, and your long experience as drunkards has made or should make you more humbly alert to the cries of distress that come from the lonely hearts of alcoholics everywhere. And keep ever in mind the confession you made on the first day of your profession in AA, namely that you are powerless. And it was only through your willingness to turn your will and your life unto my keeping that relief came to you. Think about it. Thank you. All been waiting for. This is what uh, is generally the fitting climax to a beautiful Founders Day, and incidentally, uh, I am most grateful that God has seen fit to once again let us gather together and share food and love and friendship, and it couldn't be more beautiful. It seems that we know that God smiles on us because every Founders Day so far, with one brief exception, we have had just wonderful weather. I think he approves. This, uh, the speaker for this morning is Dr. Paul. I'm not much on uh, anonymity. I just break 
everybody's signing Ebony. I figure you're not going to tell anyway, unless you tell other alcoholics, and that's okay. I met uh, Dr. Paul for the first time Friday, and his lovely wife, Max. They're uh, really very nice people. Uh, he doesn't uh, talk an awful lot, but he will this morning. Uh, they're just a real nice couple. I've uh, heard a tape of his lead, and I know what's coming, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it. So it was, a, it is with a great deal of pleasure that I introduce our speaker for this morning, Dr. Paul. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Lou. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm what you've all been waiting for. My name is Paul, and I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers and all you mothers and, and everybody who's ever had a father and anybody who's ever figured any other way to get here. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. It's a real honor, a real privilege to be here to be here for Father uh, Father's Day, for Founder's Day. I think Founder's Day is a little more important than Father's Day, but for all the obvious reasons, I'm happy to be here for Founder's Day. And uh, but it's also very significant that uh, I would be here in Ohio. I was uh, born in uh, Canton, Ohio, and when I was uh, four years old, my father without even consulting me, gave up his job uh, as a druggist in Canton, Ohio, and he bought a house drugstore combination in Alliance, Ohio. And I literally grew up in a drugstore in Alliance, Ohio. There was um, two factors of quite of considerable significance about that. One was that uh, my father was what they called a counter-prescriber. He stood behind the counter, and people in that small town, instead of running to their doctor, would, when they didn't feel well, would come to their friendly neighborhood druggist, and they would tell him how they felt, and he would decide what was wrong with them and sell them something to make them well. Either something to make them well or something to make them not care that they weren't getting well. <laughs> what are you laughing about? We still do that today, you know? Up until, up until last year, up until last year, Valium was the most commonly prescribed medication in the whole world. Valium is the cure for absolutely nothing. It's treatment for a lot of things. But he was a counter-prescriber. Later on, I learned how to be a counter-prescriber and never, uh, and remember it the rest of my life, as a matter of fact. And I became uh, an internist, where that's what you do. You diagnose, people come in and you take a history and you do an elaborate physical, and you order a bunch of expensive lab work, and then they sit down, you tell them what's wrong with them, and then you give them a medication to make them well. So either that or something to make them not care that they're not getting well. And uh, that's what I did, and I was I was uh, I specialized in that. That's all I did. didn't do any surgery because sanitized blood, and didn't didn't treat children. Can't stand kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
No matter what, no matter what it was, I could figure out what was wrong with you, and I had a pill for you that would make you well. I had a pill for every ill, and uh, I was very ethical too. I had my own version of the Hippocratic Oath in that I never ever gave a patient a pill that I hadn't first tried out on myself. You know. <laughs> The other thing that was significant about moving to Atlanta, Ohio, was right next door was where uh, Grandma Ganspine was raising her granddaughter and her two sons. And her two sons were alcoholic. All the time getting in the Alliance Review on the Monday mornings on the police blotter, it would say that the Ganspine boys had been in jail for coming drunk again. And uh, Max was the Ganspine girl, and as I was growing up, my family didn't like for me to play with a Gansline girl because they were afraid when I grew up I might turn out to be an alcoholic and by God they were right. <laughs> Winnie spent all those years going to a psychologist to find out why, why, why she was an alcoholic. My parents could have told her in a couple of minutes and saved her all that trouble. Um, Max plays an important, I'm glad you met Max, thank you for introducing her. She plays an important part in my program. She kept me drunk for years. <laughs> hey, oh, something I have to share with you. Um, I've heard a lot about the, the book today, uh, this weekend, a lot about the steps, and uh, it's been very meaningful to me. It's been a very profitable weekend for me. In fact, it's been such a tremendous weekend, I'm sure that it's uh, got enough steam to carry itself for the next hour, so I'm just going to relax and enjoy. But uh, the things that... And that book, I have accepted that book. I have, I have made the decision that that book has the truth in it, and every word in it, in, in it is true for me. I've made that decision. I have no problems with any part of the, of the book, the steps, the tradition. But there is one line that gives me just a little bit of trouble. The one that says, many of us exclaim, what an order. I can't go through with it. Now, I know that wouldn't be in the book if it weren't true. But I have never heard anybody say, what an order. <laughs> I can't go through with it. Now, when I go to, at, at our meetings in California, we read a portion of chapter 5, and we read that part up through ABC each time. So I hear it often, and I try to listen anytime there's reading to hear something read with a a different nuance, a different a word or a phrase or something, so I learn something each time I hear it. And I want to share with you, a few weeks back I heard a gal get up and read a portion of chapter 5. And when she came to that part, she read it as, many of us exclaimed, what? An order? I can't go through with it. Now, doesn't that make more sense to you? <laughs> Obviously, a question mark got dropped in the transcription from the something or other. Any, uh, speaking of my home, my home groups, uh, uh, my two home groups, uh, one is the Sunday night Pomona speaker meeting. The other is the 6.45 a.m. daily attitude adjustment hour. And we, we meet every morning before we go out to work and get our heads screwed on straight, get our attitudes straight. And we uh, 
recite the third step prayer and toward the end of the meeting we close with reciting the seventh step prayer so we turned our will and our lives and everything that happened and the seventh step we turned over all our defects and the good and the bad we turned ourselves over so as you leave that meeting it's, everything's turned over and there's no reason to criticize condemn complain about anything or anybody including yourself and you just have a tremendous attitude from that meeting right on to the next one and someday by god i'm gonna make it <laughs> and in the meantime it's fun to try i uh, just love that meeting it's very addicting though it's, uh, you get going to that meeting in the morning I, I go every morning except on the days when i don't uh, but also in uh, what I, one thing i've missed a little bit here is that in california we always um have a show of hands for instance we always have a show of hands for the alcoholics all the alcoholics raise their hand that's it can we see the hands of the newcomers and in california we just define a newcomer as anybody in their first 30 days of sobriety 30 days since your last within 30 days of sobriety would you raise your hands please all the newcomers that's your man And then sometimes we ask for a show of the hands of the Al-Anons. There's some Al-Anons in here. I can tell. I can feel the vibration. <laughs> All right, Al-Anons, raise your hands. Come on, don't be ashamed now. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Al-Anons are easily spoiled. <laughs> don't laugh. Don't laugh. You should never laugh at the Al-Anon. Our book speaks very kindly of the Al-Anon. Says they're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. said I was an alcoholic. Truth is, I don't even know what an alcoholic is. And it doesn't really matter as long as I know that I is one. And you know what to do about it. And as long as I do what you do about it, it seems to work for me. And I'm, I know that I can't drink safely, sanely, sensibly, socially. I can't drink worth a damn, as a matter of fact. And just best if I don't drink. Just, you know, when if alcohol affects you the way it affects me uh, it's just best if you don't drink it and matter of fact uh, jack was asked last night about uh, how many miles people had come to get here and i was thinking well i came quite a way from california i thought well i don't know how many miles it is but i know i went all the way to hell and back to get here <laughs> and the funny part i don't know how many miles that is i know it was a long trip I thought I'd never make it, you know. It's a long trip here, and yet one short beer will blow the whole schmear, and I'll be right back. It's a long trip here and a short trip back. And uh, But anyhow, uh, having said that, I forget what I was talking about. Was anybody listening? You know, I, uh, what was I talking about? I'll probably do that repeatedly through the morning, so you get used to that. I told you I wasn't going to pay any attention to this. I was just going to sit back and relax. But I, uh, 
I, I used to work on my problems. No, what I was saying was that when you, if, if the things that happened to you happened, if the things that happened to me when you drank happened to you when you drank, you'd be smart enough to know not to drink. You just quit. You don't really have to be all that smart to figure that out. If you can't drink safely, sensibly, socially, just leave it alone. Just don't drink it. I have a body that reacts peculiarly to alcohol, doesn't handle it at all well. It's best if I just don't drink it. No problem there. <laughs> Except that I have a brain that insists on drinking. And I find it very hard to disconnect them to. I have a body that can't drink and a brain that insists on drinking. I have to drink and I can't drink. And if you have to drink and you can't drink, that's, that's a dilemma. What it means is, if you haven't found AA, you're screwed, you know. Right? I, uh, I am tempted to tell you reasons why I drank, and, and that's ridiculous. Uh, I, it's, it's hot now. It's the time, you know, be a good time for a cooling off beer. Uh, but when it's, when it's cold, then yeah, I drank to warm up. Uh, if it was a happy occasion, I drank because it was a happy wedding. It was a funeral, I drank because it was a sad occasion. I drank to have be more awake during the day, and I drank to relax so I could sleep at night. And I drank if I was with a lot of people who were drinking. And I drank when I was alone because I was alone. <laughs> but, uh, all I can tell you is that every drink I ever took seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I think basically I drank because I'm an alcoholic, and I understand that's what alcoholics do. They drink a lot. And, uh, so I, I don't have to figure out anymore why I drank. And if I tell you why, I drank, if I say anything, it sounds like I'm explaining why I drank. Don't believe me. <laughs> I don't know why. I just seemed like a good idea. On the other hand, I... Uh, I do recall, I've always worked on problems. If you have a problem, work on it. Don't ignore it, work on it. Uh, that's a good I ended up in the nut ward with that philosophy. But uh, that was, if you have a problem, work on it. One of my problems always was to be able to sleep. I was born with congenital insomnia. I may not be the world's worst alcoholic. Uh, on the other hand, I may be, but I'd never admitted it at an AA meeting. Uh, but I am the world's worst insomniac. I've had more trouble sleeping than anybody I know, and I'm willing to compare my problem with yours anytime. And I had, uh, and I've always had a fear of lying there at night not being able to sleep. Even back in pharmacy school, I found I would go to school all day, work in the drugstore all night, study until midnight, one, two o'clock after closing the store, and lie there in bed and be half awake and half asleep, and in the morning I'd be both tired and stupid. And, I found out that at the end of the study period, I could drink a couple of beers, jump in bed, sleep real fast, and wake up smart. And it worked fine. I got honored grades in pharmacy school and honored grades in medical school and passed my specialty boards the first time. And, of course, I drank more and more as time went on. Working on the problem, that's a real good problem to experiment with. See if you can't make it worse by working on it. The harder I worked on the problem, the worse it got. And the worse it got, the harder I worked on it. What I didn't know was with the first beer that I drank in order to get to sleep at night, I was using a chemical to solve a living problem. 
I was using a chemical for sleeping as a living problem, and I was using a chemical to solve a living problem, and with that first drink, for the first time I did that, I entered, <clears throat> entered the world of better living through chemistry. <laughs> and what it did is as the time went by, it took more and more to keep me asleep, or it kept me asleep shorter and shorter periods of time, so I had to drink myself back to sleep, and then it had side effects that caused it, made, it, made me take other chemicals to counteract the side effects, and every chemical I took did the same thing. It required it over the period of time I took more and more of it because it, it didn't it lost its effect and didn't last as long. It had side effects and required me to take something else. And it's that way with the pills. I never did become a pill head. Uh, pill heads take pills just to get high or to get loaded. They like to get loaded. I never did that. Every pill I ever took uh, was medically indicated at the time. <laughs> I, I had the symptom that only that pill would relieve. I either had it or I could feel it coming on. <laughs> Every pill was medically indicated at the time and prescribed by a doctor. And, and taken according to directions and dispensed by a pharmacist. And I never became a uh, dope fiend either. Uh, <clears throat> dope fiends. Yes, yeah. They use dirty needles, and they'll take anything. They'll say, oh, what's that? Let me give me some of that. I'll squirt it in and see what happens, you know. None of that stuff for me. I never did anything like that. I, I always used a clean needle, and I, I never took anything but the purest of drugs that I had stolen from my patients. And, but I never took, I never stole any drugs from a patient that needed it worse than I did. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, they usually didn't need it at all. They, when you get all your drugs through legal sources, it's very complicated. You have to get them uh, through, they're all registered, federally registered. You have to buy your drugs from certain sources and you know exactly how much you bought of everything. And then you have to keep a record of every dose and who, who got it and for what diagnosis. And Max worked in the office. She, that's how I got, uh, my family sent, sent me to pharmacy school so I could be a prescriber like my father but I didn't care much for being a druggist people didn't seem to be all that impressed with my degree they didn't treat me like I thought I ought to be treated and they didn't seem to be nearly as impressed with my degree as I was and I thought it'd be better if I had a medical degree and my family didn't with depression for one thing and they didn't want me to go away they wanted me to stay home and work in the family drugstore and so my solution to that was to marry the girl next door and suggest she work my way through medical school and, and uh, Max did such a good job on that. When I got the medical degree, people didn't seem all that impressed with that either. And I thought, well, they'd be more impressed if I had a specialty degree. So I said, keep on working, kid. We'll get us a specialty degree. And she did such a good job that I let her work in the office then for 20 years. And uh, she would run the office and run me. And uh, some, somebody would come in, maybe a woman would come in, and I, with a flu, perhaps. And I'd say to Max, uh, She's got cholelithiasis, and I'm going to give her two cc's Demerol. Cholelithiasis, uh, that's uh, gallstones. But like Dr. Ray says, you can charge more if you call it cholelithiasis. Yeah. And so I'm going to give her two cc's of Demerol. So I'd give her two cc's of vitamin B complex. I'd give me one cc of Demerol, and she'd owe me one cc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I just love that demo. It was terrific stuff. You squirt that stuff intravenously and you squirt it in, you stand there and wait. Nothing happens. And all of a sudden it gets in your feet and just rushes right up and gets to your ears and lifts you off the floor and you just float around. Just wonderful stuff. Just love it. My nose itches a little bit because it makes me think of morphine. Morphine makes your nose itch, you know? And like that. And also with morphine you tend to vomit suddenly and the patients never got used to that. And, uh, But Demerol was terrific. Uh, in fact, if any of you are planning a slip, you might try getting some Demerol before you get back. It's, a, it's not worth going out after, but if you're there. There you go. But, uh, and, and Max worked in the office, and that, that's the way I got my drugs and narcotics. And I, I would work on my sleeping problem to, uh, it, it, it took more and more to keep me asleep, and I, uh, it would keep me asleep shorter and shorter periods of time. In fact, it got, the more I had to drink myself back to sleep at night, the harder it was to get up in the morning. And I remember one morning thinking to myself, my God, what would you do for a patient that feels like you do? And the answer came right back, well, I'd give them something to pep them up. And I started taking the socially acceptable appetite appeasers with the upper and the downer in it. And uh, a little while later, I thought to myself, what are you taking a pill with the downer in it for when you're trying to get upper? So I left the downer out. And I was taking straight up uppers, and I was taking amphetamines and Ritalin and Benzedrine. And I would squirt them in intravenously and take them in pills and uh, uh, taking more and more. And finally, and I would go through the day and I would take more in order to stay up. Then I would overshoot and I would take tranquilizers to counteract the overshoot. They'd come out since then. And as the evening came on, I got to think, my God, you couldn't sleep before. How are you going to sleep not taking all these pep pills? So I started taking sleeping pills to counteract the pep pills so the scotch could put me to sleep. And, and as I say, better living through the chemistry was the way of life. But even that wasn't enough. I got to where, in order to get sleep in a hurry, I would inject penicillin in my vein to get to sleep at night. You know what penicillin is? It, they don't, when you go in for anesthesia now, they don't put a mask over your face and say, breathe deep. They put a needle in your vein and they say, count to ten. And you say, one, and zing, you're asleep. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. Instant blackout is what it is. Beautiful stuff. Not as nice as Demerol, but it's really nice stuff. Uh, I used to zing myself to sleep with that. The problem with it was I couldn't go down to the office and put myself to sleep and then drive home and go to bed. And I couldn't lay there in bed and have my one daughter call the other daughter and say, hey, Ann, come watch Daddy take his nightly fix. So I would keep the penicillin in the bag, in the bag, in the car, in the car, in the garage, and thank God the garage was attached to the house. And I'd go through a day of pill taking and an evening of drinking, and I would decide it was time to go to bed. I'd go out in the garage and mix up penicillin, stick the needle in my vein, and try to figure out now how many pills have I had, how much have I had to drink. And I'd try to squirt it in, take it out, take it around, throw it in the bag, throw it in the bank car, slam the car door, run down the hall, jump in bed so I could fall asleep. And, and, it took all of my pharmaceutical and medical training and experience to get the dose right because this, it was very critical. Just a teensy little bit too much. I just zing right under the car, you know. <laughs> it, uh, or, or just the opposite, just a little tiny bit, not enough. And I squirt it and take it out, take it around, throw it in the back, throw it in the back car, slam the car door, run down the hall and jump in bed. Nothing would happen, you know. Half measures availed me absolutely nothing. 
And I, well, I get up and I have to go back and do it over again. Even if it worked, I had to go back and do it over again. It got to, again, it lasted for a shorter and shorter period of time until it, didn't, it was fast asleep but fast awake. And finally, one night, I had, to, I had to put myself back to sleep, shoot myself to sleep four times in one night. Four times in one night. In the morning, I got to thinking about that. It wasn't the most restful night's sleep I've ever had either. And I got to thinking about that in the morning. And I thought to myself, you know, that's not social sleeping, you know? See? And yet, you know, I couldn't stop doing that. You know, of course, by the fourth time you're doing it, you've got your foot up on the hood of the car trying to find veins to shoot in the thing. And it's, it's completely impractical. And yet I had a hard time not doing that. I had to find ways to set barriers for me to buy anymore so it would be a threat to my license so that I would stop buying it. So the threat of loss of license was a stronger factor than anything else for my sobriety and in many professional peoples and others too. But anyway, uh, that was the only way I could stop doing it. I had to do the same thing with uh, narcotics. I had to learn how to practice medicine without narcotics and that was very easy because my office was, I had built a medical building right beside the hospital and all you had to do was walk across the a parking lot to get to the emergency room. More difficult was to try to learn to live life without any pills around. That was uh, pills. That was when pills were mailed to you just automatically, and just without even asking for them, you get them. And as a salesman coming around, he say, "You want some Placidil or Quaalude or Nolidar or Doradin or anything, whatever you want." So yeah, he say, "Sign here," and he send you a bottle of 250 or something. And all these pills are coming in the mail. And, I, you know, it reminds me of one doctor who had a pill problem. He says, he said, well, while other doctors were busy reading their mail, I was busy eating mine. Yeah. <laughs> it was that sort of a deal. And so I used a lot of pills. And working on my sleeping problem took me from having a bit of trouble getting to sleep when I was studying to having, the, having to inject myself four times in one night. And I found the same thing is true with any problem I work on. Well, working on the sleep, the um, Drinking problem was the same way. Everything I did to make it better seemed to temporarily make it better, enough to make me think I had control, and then it always ended up worse. And uh, the same way with the marital problem. I was watching Max get sicker and sicker and sicker. And it uh, wasn't that I didn't care. If anything, I cared too much. I did all kinds of things to help that woman. I uh, sent her to psychology classes and... Uh, self-improvement courses. I really got her correspondence course, read her the instructions, and I, I, I thought maybe hypnosis would help her. I took a course in hypnosis. Turned out she wasn't a very good hypnotic subject. Uh, I didn't give up. I ended up, I took six different courses in hypnosis trying to hypnotize that one. And I ended up a drunken hypnotist. Yeah. <laughs> the sicker she got, the harder I worked on her case. It, absolutely amazes me uh, how well she's gotten since I stopped helping her. See? But she, she kept getting sicker and sicker, and I was doing everything I could help her. And, and it was, I could see that she was, what was happening to her. And actually, when it ended up at the nut ward, it really didn't surprise me at all. But when that steel door slammed shut, and she was the one that went home, I was absolutely amazed. You know? <laughs> uh, Everything I did, everything I did had complications to it. And as I was saying, even the pills, the pills had uh, side effects. It made your mouth so dry you couldn't talk. It would uh, 
Or I find myself saying something, I think, my God, why are you saying that again? You've already said it three times. I think, I don't know, it just sounds so good, I think I'll say it again. You know, I'm just talking away. When I, uh, in my work, I do a lot of uh, physical examination. When I examine men, I have them take off everything but their shorts. When I examine women, uh, I have them take off everything. And I give them a gown, a sheet with a couple of holes in it. They stick their hands through it and they feel like they hang down in front. They feel like they got something on. They're sitting on a table facing this way. And I stand here and I examine their eyes, ears, nose, throat, neck. And I take a little plastic thing and I drop it down. And they're sitting there topless. And I immediately put my right hand over the left breast and I say to them, do you examine your breasts regularly for lumps? And one of two things happens. It's always the same. It's always the same. They either think, my last doctor told me to do that, and I used to do that, but I never found any lumps, so I decided I wasn't doing it right, so I stopped doing it, but I ought to be doing it. Or else they think, my last doctor told me to do that, but I don't want any lumps in my breasts, so I've never done that, but I ought to be doing it. But either way, they're thinking of the scientific aspect of why some man is standing there with his hand on their breast. So I just never put my hands on a woman's breast without saying, you examine your breast regularly for lumps. <laughs> and it's always worked very well for me. There you go. Uh. <laughs> Remember, this is Sunday morning, folks. See? Well, I went to work one day with other after a hard night, and uh, I got to work with and ate a few extra pills, and I examined this gal who was rather small. It wasn't that she was short, it was that she was small. She just wasn't very well endowed in the breast department. And then she was sitting there, and I examined her eyes here, snow, throat, neck, through a plastic thing dropped down, put my right hand over her left nubbin, and I looked at her, I looked at her very solicitously, and I said, do you examine your lumps regularly for breasts? Yeah. I've often wondered whatever happened to her. See? I figure someday I'm going to find her in AA. And I ended up in the nut ward uh, of the hospital I was on the staff of. I, uh, I'd ended up first in the Mayo Clinic, uh, and there's nothing wrong with the Mayo Clinic. Clinic, but don't go there Christmas time. Uh, if you go there Christmas time, they want you to ice Christmas cookies. <laughs> I don't like to ice Christmas cookies. And nurse took me down and steered my hand in the icing and smashed it onto a cookie. And I don't know how many cookies we crumbled before I told her what she could do with her cookies. You know. I knew how to get out of a place like that. You sign out, by God. It was Christmas Day in 1966, and I remember that smart-ass uh, psychiatry resident that came over and had me sign out, and uh, it was a little hard to sign my name, too, because he watched me write, and at that time I couldn't write when anybody was watching me, but I got it done, and he, he said something about, well, I hope you make it, but I know you won't. And I thought, you little 
smart ass, you know. Here you are, just a dumb old psychiatry resident. You haven't even been out there yet. And I've been out there and I'm making it, right? you know. I'm a full-blown internist and the most prominent internist in town. And, uh, uh, and you're telling me I can't make it. It infuriated me. But I never forgot what he said either. And we get on the airplane. And I, of course, I had, I had the only way you could get out of a place like that, you sign out, but you have to have somebody take responsibility for you. And the only one that was there was Max and taking responsibility. Of course, I had a promise her I wouldn't drink anymore, take pills anymore, talk to girls anymore, smile anymore, ever be happy again, you know. I had to threaten her with the fact. I said, if you don't do it, I'll never speak to you again. That got her by God. She's lived to regret that decision. That the, and we got on the airplane, and immediately had a big fight over whether or not I drink the free booze. And it wasn't that I wanted it. It was that I had paid for it. You know, you, know, you paid for it, you're supposed to drink it. It'd be foolish not to. And so we had a big fight. But she nagged, and she fought, and she, she won. She won. I didn't drink it. And by God, I wouldn't eat or I wouldn't talk either. Huh? <laughs> All the way back to California with Max and I and our two adopted daughters at Christmas Day, 1966. And uh, got back here, she went to see us. Uh, she called a neurologist. I was under treatment by the most prominent neurologist in Orange County because I'd had a convulsion. And uh, on two occasions, I decided I wasn't going to take anything to see what would, uh, to sleep. I wasn't going to take anything and just see what would happen. And both times the next morning, I had a grand mal convulsion. I never did that anymore. Uh, and in the morning, here I had this convulsion, and here I am, a diagnostician, one of the world's greatest, and, and I was able to look in the mirror and look at me and look at the fact that I had two convulsions. Now, obviously, alcohol had nothing to do with the convulsion because I hadn't anything to drink the night before. I had the convulsions twice, I had pancreatitis once, but I forgot about that. Uh, I had daily headaches, I had a sense of impending doom, I thought I was going crazy, I was losing weight, I looked awful, I was obviously chronically ill, there was something seriously wrong with me. Obviously. I have a brain tumor. Yeah. <laughs> and I would die and you'd all be sorry by God. And, you know, I was going to a neurologist, a specialist in convulsive disorders, and he didn't know why I had a convulsion. He didn't think to ask if I drank, and I didn't think to tell him. And, that's why he sent me back to the Mayo Clinic. And uh, so I ended up thinking, I, and I was able to convince myself I had this brain tumor. And I ended up back, I called a neurologist, told him about the nut ward. Turned out later, I found out six years, seven years later, I found out Max squealed to him that I was taking pills. That's the only reason they ever in, ended up in the nut ward. They wouldn't, I guess I'd still be there trying to figure out why I had my convulsion, because I was taking pills the whole time I was there. Uh, and, and I, I called the neurologist, told him about the psychiatrist, had me see a psychiatrist there, he talked to me for 45 minutes, talked to Max for five minutes, put me back in the nut ward there in the hospital, I was on the staff up. And I was there, uh, he wouldn't talk to me. He'd end up talking to other people, and every time I'd go to approach him and say, you know, my patients are literally dying for me to get out of here, he would up the time that we had allegedly agreed I would stay when I went in. And I thought, I may be a little bit flaky, but I'm not flaky enough to go on playing this stupid game forever. And I, sitting there, in fact, I spent my, the more I had lost control of my life, the more I lost control of my drinking, my pills or whatever, the more I lost control, the harder I fought for control. The harder, the more I lost control, the more I tried to control Max and patients and people and tenants in the building and my kids and the neighbors. I was fighting for control of everything around me. 
and where I had lost control, the more I fought for control. And I spent my time there in the Nutworth. Uh, Max, as I said, worked in the office. I spent my time writing lists and orders and directions and letters and things for her to do to keep the world running while I'm locked up in the Nutworth. <laughs> now today I admit that's kind of crazy. But it's not nearly as crazy as her coming back every day for a new list. <laughs> and I remember sitting there one day thinking to myself, with all the things that had gone wrong, that a nice guy like me ended up in a place like that. All the series of mistakes and misunderstandings and things that happened other than the way they were supposed to. Because when you're in charge of your life, everything that happens other than the way you planned it obviously happened that way by mistake or somebody screwed it up for you. And so I was thinking of all the things that had gone wrong, that a nice guy like me ended up in a place like that, when this dumb psychiatrist who couldn't see that Max was my problem, walked up behind me and said, would I like to talk to a man from AA? And I thought, God almighty, doctor, don't I have enough problems of my own with, without trying to help some drunk from AA? You know? I have never liked treating alcoholics. They always want an emergency vitamin shot or an emergency sleeping pill or they want you to sign a thing so they can get back to work Monday morning. And they always want to be seen without an appointment. They don't keep an appointment when they have one and they don't pay their bill regardless. And, uh, and anything I couldn't stand is treating alcoholics. But I had the look on his face, the look on his face. I could just tell it would make him happy if I said, I'm sure none of you have ever been in the nut ward. But if you're ever in a nut ward, you'll find that happiness, happiness in a nut ward is having a happy psychiatrist. You'll do just about anything to make your psychiatrist happy. And I just have the feeling if I said yes, it would make him happy. And I said yes, and it made him happy. And then within, seemed like 30 seconds, this goof comes running in the room yelling, Hi, my name is Frank, and I'm an alcoholic. And I, uh, oh my God, you know. <laughs> a loud voice shouting at the top of his voice. You know, alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, no strong. Why don't you lower your voice? You know? These people all think I'm a nut. Why don't we leave it at that, you know? And, and, uh, uh, interminable story. I have no idea what he said, but I know how he ended. He finally ended up saying, well, that's my story. I'm going to meet and I'd like to go along. I said, hell no, I won't like it, but I'll go, because I, I figured he'd go back and squeal to that dumb psychiatrist. And indeed he would have. And uh, then Max, uh, Max and I both went with him. And it, geez, what a guy. I mean, he was ashamed of him. He's uh, telling you all this personal stuff that you don't, you don't talk about personal things. God, he was estranged from his wife and trying to get back together. And he bought her guitar lessons for Christmas. She ran off with a guitar teacher. Yeah. Yeah. You don't talk about things like that. Uh, then I went to these meetings, and uh, I knew I was going to... And it, the, the meeting did have a profound effect on the psychiatrist. Uh, he points per meeting, and eventually I got enough brownie points, I got out of the hospital, went to a few meetings to keep the psychiatrist happy. Max enjoyed the meetings, and uh, so as a result, whenever she would uh, 
act, act smart, I'd punish her. I'd decide I wasn't going to the meeting. And uh, she stayed home with me a few Saturday nights because we had been going every Saturday night whether I needed it or not. And uh, she stayed home a few times and watched me drink. And finally she did something she couldn't do. She got in the car and drove uh, off to Laguna Beach to the meeting by herself. We lived in Anaheim, went to meetings down in Laguna Beach about 45 miles away. We had to go down there so we wouldn't run into anybody we knew. And went there, got hooked on the meetings down there, went there long enough that I ran into everybody that goes to the Laguna Beach so they won't run into anybody they know. Yeah. <laughs> went there so much people thought we lived in Laguna Beach. And, uh, the, um, and, and, so, and she went off to the meetings by herself. And I say, have you ever tried staying home on a Saturday night and drink all by yourself? while your non-alcoholic wife is off laughing it up at an AA meeting. Yeah. It was boring, and I had uh, I'm terribly dependent on Max, and always have been. In fact, when I had my first convulsion, they put me in the hospital. I wouldn't stay in the hospital. A little boy wouldn't stay in the ho- little boy doctor wouldn't stay in the hospital unless his mommy was allowed to stay in the other bed in the same room. And Max stayed there, too, and so I stayed. And the next day, I signed out. <laughs> I'm no less dependent on Max today than I was then, but somehow it's a different kind of dependency. It's not a sick of dependency. Uh, the, uh, in fact, Max and I have been together. I was just at this meeting the other day, and it surprised me. At the end of this year, Max, December the 2nd, Max and I will have been married 45 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, to accomplish a deal like that. There's certain things required. The most obvious is you have to be very, very old. And we're getting older all the time, and yet I don't feel old. I thought, my God, we've only got five years in which to have a 50th anniversary, and only old folk have 50th anniversary. We've only got five years in which to grow old. But <laughs> maybe we'll have the youngest 50th anybody's ever had. I don't know. But anyhow, uh, I ended up we're going to these meetings to go with Max, and there were a number of things that I heard that really affected me. One was, uh, I was making this list of things why I wasn't really, 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 really an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. And had, these are things, and I had a list of things that you had done that I hadn't done, and things that, how I was different from you, and I wasn't really an alcoholic. And uh, it was about that time somebody said of themselves, they stood at the AA podium, they said, I was judging me by my intentions, and the world was judging me by my actions. And I, I was sorry he said that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, am, I, will, I will match my intentions against yours any time. I can very, very humbly say that I am one of the best intentioned people I have ever met, you know. And yet, when I set all my intentions aside and just looked at my actions, I was a drunken husband, drunken father, drunken neighbor, drunken citizen, drunken doctor of all things, and a common, ordinary drunk. And it was, a, it was probably important that at that, about the same time, somebody said of themselves, they said, I would rather be an AA by mistake than out there by mistake. Yeah. And it, that helped me a great deal in making that decision. Do I really belong here? 
and uh, and looked at the cost of going on drinking. And, and I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm impressed with the price we appear to be willing to pay to go on drinking. I say appear to be. We even insist that we're doing it, uh, exercising our right, but it's a part of our disease. We you know, lost a wife. Oh, I can always get another one. Give me a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Lost the house, the car, the kids. Oh, give me another drink. You know, we're willing. To, we appear to be willing to pay any price to go on drinking. And to this day, I'm not. I love drunkalogs because I'm fascinated by what alcohol does to people like us. And what does it cost to come to AA? You have to spend a, a weekend like this. Isn't that tough? Yeah. Where can you find a disease which is more fun to treat than this one? Yeah. And this cheap, yeah. Not only that, but the my background, as I say, is, is in internal medicine. I've studied all the diseases of adults. I've studied diseases I've never even seen yet. And I study diseases I don't even care if I never see. I don't. I'm I'm no longer looking for my first case of tutsukamuchi fever. Squash your core. And yet of all the diseases I've studied, this is the only disease I know that we're in when people get well, they're weller than when they got sick. Yeah, we, we get weller than well. And, so, and I, even if AA wasn't keeping me sober, I'd keep coming back to these meetings because of, I like to watch what happens to people. Watch the light comes on. Watch the growth. Watch the things, the beautiful things that happen to us when we get well. And uh, including the Al-Nons. I kid the Al-Nons, but I just love al I, I really admire anybody who would do these steps without the threat of getting drunk if you don't, by God. You know? and, uh, I, in fact, there's nobody, individually or as an organization, who are more anxious to see us make it than them. And they have a vested interest in us. Uh, anyhow, I uh, ended up at the end, sometime the end of July, sometime during July, rather, I uh, accepted the fact that I really was, somehow, now I really did have a drinking problem, it was a serious drinking problem, and I even was a kind of alcoholic, <laughs> some mild kind, you know. Uh, and uh, from that, I think what happened is when I accept the fact that I was an alcoholic, I flipped from living in the problem to living in the answer. And I've stayed in the answer ever since, and staying sober is the easiest thing I do today. It's very easy for me. As long as I do the things that I'm doing, the things that you're doing, the things that are working for me, I just not taking a drink is the easiest thing I do. I don't even take a drink when I deserve it. This, <laughs> which is what you do. We just, we just don't drink, even when we deserve it. And a lot of times we deserve it, but we don't take it. It isn't, but I got to thinking about it, and I realized that to me, when you, if you can't drink any better than I can, just don't drink. And I quit. And I, every, and I realized that every time I had quit, I had ended up drunk. And I thought to myself, you know, this quitting drinking is killing me. Yeah? <laughs> and when I decided that I was an alcoholic, I decided I was going to be, there's only two kinds of alcoholics, there's winners and there's losers. And I decided I wanted to be a winner. I'd been a loser long enough. And I decided to act like one in order to be one. I would go around and talk to people and say, how do you work this program? What do you do? How do you stay sober? 
And I'd do the things that winners do and stop doing the things they stopped doing. And I'd not do the things that... If you act like a loser, if you don't like the word loser, substitute something else. I can't think of one at the moment. But, but if you act like a loser, you're going to be one. Because that's what a loser is. It's a winner who's acting like a loser. But if you act like a winner, you'll be a winner, just the same. And I act like one in order to become one. And um, I, uh, I, I find it very easy for me to stay sober. In fact, that act as if has been an important thing for me. One of my favorite um, moods was always depression. I love to feel depressed. You know. I love to close everything in on myself, and go to bed and pull the covers over my head, and mope around. And I came to realize that that's very depressing to act depressed. You know. And I find it much better to act enthusiastic. I find if I act enthusiastic, I tend to become enthusiastic. And I, acted, I act as if in order to become. And it works very well for me. And I, I find the same thing is true in being loving. I don't know how to be loving. In fact, the very word kind of seems a little icky, strong or something. And yet I find that if I act loving, I tend to become loving. It's the same way with being spiritual. I don't... Instead of waiting until I feel spiritual in order to act it, I'm better off if I act it in order to become, begin to feel it. I find a lot of people doing that with a third step. They don't want to take the third step until they feel that emotion. And truth is it works better if you do the things and then you feel the emotion later. Of course, there's a lot of people, the reason they don't want to do the third step, they know if they do, they'll end up smack dab in front of the fourth and they don't want to get into that. See? So actually not drinking is an easy thing for me to do. Uh, AA has been very dramatic in the way it has helped me with my drinking problem. Very dramatic. It has been very, very helpful, but not nearly as dramatic in helping me with my thinking problem. My thinking is my problem. I think my way into... I have never thought I had a big problem and been wrong. <laughs> if I think it's big, it's big. And I used to write about it if I never thought I had a little problem. And I, de I didn't realize that I determine the size of my problems. I decide whether it's big or little. My problem is that if I think about a problem, I don't even have to work on it anymore. If I just think about it, I add power to it. I can take any problem and make it I can take a non-problem. Well, you can see that's no problem. But if you think about it a minute, it, it could be. And then, now look at this spot right here a minute. It is kind of a problem. You know, and I'm watching this thing grow, and pretty soon I'm thinking, you know, it's a good thing I'm looking at this because nobody else is recognizing this is a problem. And I watch it grow, and I'm thinking, my God, look at that problem, you know. And I talk to people and I say, well, don't think about it. You know, and you look over there and there it is, you know. And you look over there and there it is. And how are you going to not, I can't have a problem and not be obsessed with it, you know. This is a tremendous problem. And I have this sponsor, his name is Jack. Jack's a wonderful guy, but he's got this stupid expression. He says, well, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah. Jack is a beautiful man. And when he has, when he's lost his job and he's lost his health and he's all, everything's falling apart in his life and he can say, well, whatever. It's really beautiful to see. I just love to see that man work his program. But when I got a problem and he says, well, whatever. What are you going to do with well, whatever, when you got this problem? And you can't. In fact, one time, my feeling has always been that I would have done a great deal more with my life if I'd have had the right people behind me to help me. <laughs> if I'd have had the perfect spouse, I could have done much more with my life. And my feeling going through life was always to explain, let me tell you what I have to put up with. Let me tell you what she did today. Let me tell you what she just did now. You know, I was always explaining what she had done, which somehow I was supposed to explain why I hadn't done more with my life. And I always love to tell these stories to Jack, my sponsor. That's what sponsors are for. And, but one day I called Jack up to tell him what Max had done, and he was short with me. And it, <laughs> and, uh, he, he interrupted me as I started telling him what she had done, and he said, uh, well, why don't you just put it out of your mind for a couple of days and see what happens? I said, in a couple of in a couple of days, I'll forget all about it, you know. <laughs> and that's the way it is when I have one of these problems, you know, I'm carrying, I don't know what to do with it, and finally the phone rings, and somebody I'm sponsor is called up with some really stupid little problem. Yeah. Have you ever noticed what little things people get upset about? Yeah and all upset about it and they come on the phone this is why he doesn't know whether to leave his wife or stay and they don't know whether the program's going to work or not and you know you know the answer you work say the serenity prayer or whatever and, but you can't tell them you can't tell them the answer you no you have to listen you have to do active listening active listening active listening is where you say oh they did Oh, tell me more. Oh, you poor, you know. You lead them on. You lead them on everything you can. Talk, 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 talk. So they talk it out. You see, you have to do active listening. You have to appear in interested. Because if you don't, they'll go around AA and talk about you. you, 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 you. They may even go off and find another sponsor, and that would really be bad. Especially if they've been getting drunk while you're sponsoring, they stay sober with the other one. You can't let that happen. So... You have to seem interested, and you listen. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, yes, yes. You let them talk, 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 talk. And when they get through, then you give them an answer. What's the answer? You pick a number from 1 to 12. You, know? you, you say, work that step, you know. <laughs> they come back and say, oh, wasn't he profound, you know. I've had people say they refuse to sponsor somebody that asks them to sponsor. What did you do that for? I said, well, I didn't know enough about the program. I said, you know the numbers from 1 to 12, you dummy? You don't know, have to know the program. And uh, anyway, you get you talk, you get rid of them, and you get back, and you look at your problem, and say, what happened to my problem? Just wilted right away. You can't neglect problems like that. You've got to stay right there with them. They're very delicate. They need, like a delicate flower. They need a lot of water, a lot of care, a lot of fertilizer, especially a lot of fertilizer. in <laughs> 
When you're nursing a problem like that, a lot of times they're so delicate you can't even take time out to go off to the meeting. You, know, you go off to the meeting, especially if you go to the meeting early and go to the, stay for the meeting before the meeting and stay for the meeting and stick around for the meeting after the meeting and talk to the people. You get home after all that, you'll have a fine. That problem probably will be wielded to the point where you can't even bring it back. <laughs> you got to stay right in there. I don't know how you think, but I think in words, sentences, paragraphs, talk, talk. Somebody's talking to me all the time. Since the day I was born, somebody talk, 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 talk. It's like you're in a talk show on the radio, and sometimes it drifts over and it gets another one. There's two of them. Talk, 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 you know. All the time talking in my head. And uh, I, uh, it's like a, people talk about schizophrenics. They say, uh, you know, split personality. You have one personality, you split it, you got two. Two personalities would be nothing. You know, I got, I got like two dozen or something. I got, my head is a very busy place. Uh, I shouldn't have said my name is Paul and I'm an alcoholic. I should have said my name is Paul and we are alcoholic. You know? A whole lot of people live up there. And, they, and there's nobody been in charge. Nobody told me when I was younger, you're chairman of the committee, fella. I didn't know that, you know. Whoever talked the loudest, that's what we did. You know? hmm? There's one guy up there, that, uh, no matter what the situation is, uh, happy occasion, sad occasion, or this, well, no matter what the situation, you only got one answer. He says, I'm going to have a drink. Yeah. And he got a very loud voice. You know, every, time, every time he took a drink, we all got drunk, you know. <laughs> they all got one track thing. They got one up there that doesn't like Max. Yeah, look what she did now. Look how she's acting. Are you going to let her talk to you like that? Yeah. Does she know who she's talking to? You know, yeah. There's another one up there who thinks she's absolutely fantastic. Thinks she's just terrific. There's one that knows I'm not going to make it. You try that, you're going to fail. They're all going to laugh. Don't do it. Don't ship it. Constantly tell me, don't do that. Another one thinks I can do anything. Thinks I can just accomplish anything I'm after. And I got all these voices in me all the time talking and I I used to take pills and drink shoot drugs in order to drown them out so I could sleep at night all the time talking and uh, I find today I can't do that for a variety of reasons including the fact that that's how God talks to me I don't know how he talks to you maybe he talks to burning bushes but it's me he talks to he's one of those voices in my head and it's one among the voices in AA. That's right here, God, here and in my head. And I have to stay alert and listen and pick and choose. It's just like an AA meeting. I don't do everything everybody suggests. I have to pick and choose. And that's the way it is in my head. I let anybody talk down. They're all my friends. Even the ones that say, let's have a drink. That's part of me and that's the only answer he knows. And he's trying to see me make it, really. And uh, so I let anybody talk. And when I get your talking, I say, well, thank you for participating. Now, if you'll sit down, we'll get somebody else in. My job is to be chairman and provide coffee and donuts and a place to hold the meeting. You know, and the, the, 
my thinking is my problem. Have you ever done the, um, my time's up, but have you ever done the thing with the 20 questions? You know what the, uh, uh, whether or not you're an alcoholic and you check your, your drinking? Uh, I like to substitute, I carry this thing around with me to remind me. Yeah, here it is. The 20 question. I like to substitute the word thinking for drinking because, as I say, not drinking is really not my, it is my problem. I know that. You don't need to remind me after the meeting. But as long as I keep doing the things I'm doing, drinking is not a problem for me today. today. But thinking is, remains a problem. And the 20 questions come up with things like, do you lose time from work due to your thinking? <laughs> Incidentally, your Alamans might want to pay attention to this too, yeah. And you get questions like, is your thinking making your home life unhappy? Do you think because you're shy with other people? Have you ever felt remorse after thinking? <laughs> Have you gotten into financial difficulty as a result of thinking? <laughs> Do you crave a think at a definite time daily? <laughs> Do you want to think the next morning? Here's a really dumb one. Does your thinking cause you to have difficulty in sleeping? <laughs> Many times my body wanted to lie down and go to sleep, my brain said, no, let's lay here and talk about it a while. Yeah. <laughs> or even uh, sound asleep in the middle of the night, say, hey, wake up, we want to talk to you. <laughs> you know that deal that you handled today and it went so well? It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> They're really ticked off. You wait till morning. And then they spend the rest of the night asking questions to which there are no answers. You know? Hard to sleep when they're talking to you. Is your thinking jeopardizing your job or business? Do you think to escape from worries or trouble? Do you think alone? Not all of you can say yes to it, but I can. The one that says, um, has your physician ever treated you or have you ever been in a hospital or institution on account of your thinking? But the one I like best is the one that says, have you ever had a complete loss of memory as a result of thinking? Yeah. yeah. So, I'm happy to be here today. Glad you asked me. I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy to be sober. happy to participate. I'm happy to be me today. That's, that's the big deal. Acceptance of uh, my alcoholism was the answer to my drinking problem, and acceptance of me as in life was the answer to my living problem, and uh, acceptance has been the key for me. And I was talking to a gal after a meeting the other night, and she said, what I'd said, I had quoted somebody from another meeting who had said, life is not painful. This woman had said, life is not painful. It's our resistance to life that is painful. And after the meeting, this woman uh, said she couldn't quite accept that, that she had a uh, son who had been injured in an accident and he was quadriplegic, he was in a coma, had been for several years. And that was not acceptable to her in life. It was painful. And I said, acceptance 
does not mean approval. It wasn't when he had said, who said, first is admission, then is acceptance, and later on is approval. Uh, you don't have to approve of life in order to accept it. Except approval may or may not come later. First you have to admit it, then you accept it. And it, what, what is it we accept? What do you accept when you accept life? What is, when you practice acceptance, what do you accept? The way I see it is you accept the challenge. You say, oh, I'm an alcoholic? Okay, that means I've got to somehow try to make it in life in spite of the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I'll accept the challenge and move ahead into the answer. Accept, accept another person? Yeah, I can accept that person being as they are. I may not like what they're doing, but I can accept the fact that they're a part of my life. I can accept the challenge. I can accept the challenge of being happy and joyous in life in spite of that fact. And happiness is, uh, a book says, uh, there's a line in a book, I think it's page 139, 132, says, we absolutely insist on, it, on enjoying life. We, abs <clears throat> we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And I like to think I don't come to meeting to uh, AA because I have to. I come for the fun of it. I don't come just for the fun of it, and I know I have to, but I don't like to come because I have to. I'd rather come for the fun of it, because it's more fun to come for the fun of it. You know? And so I come for the fun of it, and I come for the joy. There's great joy in AA. And I, uh, in fact, I think we have, my, uh, for me, I speak for myself, if I'm not enjoying my program, I'm not doing it right. If I'm not enjoying life, I'm not doing it right. Life is to be enjoyed. In fact, I will tell you my own little secret theology, and then I'll sit down. Um, I am, we are told, or I am told, I was told all my life, that when we die, we're going to get to the pearly gates, and God's going to meet us there for our pre-admission interview, and he's going to ask us, have you been good? And then he's going to decide what he's going to do with us. Uh, and they wouldn't tell us that if it weren't true, so I'm sure it's true, but... I have never met anybody who's been there and had their interview and came back and said that's what's going to happen. Besides, I, he's got a book full of marks, and he already knows I ain't been good. But uh, so I'm not sure he's going to say, have you been good? I think if we go to the pearly gates and we do have a pre-admission interview and God does ask us a question, I think what he's going to ask us is, did you enjoy it? He's going to say, I worked like the devil. I'm, I worked very hard trying. <laughs> I worked very hard trying to give you everything you needed to be happy. 100% happy all the time. May not give you everything you wanted, but I gave you everything you needed to be happy. Now, did you enjoy it? And if you say, well, gee, God, if you'd have told me I was supposed to enjoy it, uh, if I say, no, never mind that. Just I stayed up day and night trying to give you everything you need to be happy. That's why so many joys of nature, so many happy occasions. So much. Did you enjoy it down there? And if you say, well, not really, God. You're probably going to say, well, you can join that line over there. You can go to hell. <laughs> yeah. So the moral of the story is you better enjoy it whether you like it or not. Yeah. 
stopped and say to somebody, well, did you ever try AA? This guy's been drunk for years and years and years. I say, have you tried AA? And he says, oh, I don't like AA. And I think, what the hell does that have to do with anything? You know, it's kind of like saying somebody saying, well, I don't like chemotherapy. What else you got? You know, it's just, but anyhow, I, uh, my relationship with me is better. My relationship with people is better. My relationship with Max is fantastic. We, we have tremendous communication. I can go on and on about it, but basically it narrows down the fact that I find it's much more practical for me to tell her how I feel about me. To tell her how I feel about me than to tell her what I think about her. Yeah. <laughs> Simple. It's kind of like having a podium in the living room him in the bedroom, sharing instead of telling. And my relationship with my God is now, I got to mention my God before I sit down, because uh, if I don't, he reminds me on the way home. And uh, uh, he and I are good friends. We get along terrific today. And uh, <clears throat> he rides to work with me every day, except on the days when he forgets. And uh, <laughs> I, I tell him that uh, I'll pedal and you steer. And for God's sake, watch where you're going. Uh, I'm sick, sick of some of the places we've been. And within the last few months, I, uh, you know, I found out not too many months ago that I was supposed to be chairman of the committee. And since God has done such a good job with my drinking problem, I decided to give him charge of my thinking problem. So I told him, he's chairman of the committee. He's now in charge of my thinking. And uh, in fact, the other day, I was telling him on the way to work, that uh, night before, Max and I had gotten into a big argument, and uh, I told him, God, you're supposed to be in charge of my thinking. I wish you'd watch that stuff. I, uh, I hate to turn something over to him and have him do a lousy job with it. <laughs> I point out to him when he does that, it spoils my pitch if he doesn't do a good job. And, and the same way with my son, it goes all the way back to my sleep. I, I, I turn my will and my life and my wife over the care of God. I turn my will and my life and my sleep over the care of God. And I like to mention that in large groups like this so that if, if I ever die from lack of sleep, we'll all know whose fault it is. You know, <laughs> I like to keep them reminded. Um, he and I get along fine. I no longer give him a long list of things I want him to do. This first, this next, this next, and these little have time to get these done. And this long list of things, now don't let that happen. For God's sake, don't let that happen. These are things, don't let happen. These are things, once it happens, sooner the better. Don't do that anymore. I don't give him lists. So as a result, he has a lot of free time. <laughs> and he doesn't handle it particularly well. So what I do is I lend them out. I lend them out to people who don't have a higher power or who have one they don't get along well with or who don't, especially, especially the people who don't believe in one. Especially, I lend them out to rent-free to people who don't, have, don't believe in a higher power. You don't have to believe in one. You just, I believe enough for both of us. And he works just as well whether you don't or not. And what you do is you just, you don't have to ask me, just tell him I sent you. And interesting thing about that is, I, could, I can just imagine some of you sitting there thinking, well, now that's stupid. That wouldn't work. You know, the interesting thing about that is you're right. If you know it won't work and you don't do it, it won't work. It's as simple as that. But you'll have, you have no way of knowing that whether or not it would work unless you tried. It's kind of like as if I gave you a book of blank checks on a bank. And I said, there's a million dollars in this bank, in your name. All you have to do is write checks on it. 
You wouldn't have to be very clever at all. Then they go, now that's stupid. There's no money in there. And you'd be right. For you, there's no money. Yeah. But if you wrote a check and they cashed it, and you wrote another check and they cashed it, and every check you wrote, they cashed it. The more checks you wrote, the more money you'd get, the more you'd believe. And that's the way this God thing works. Sit and don't sit and wait till you feel like it to do it. Do it. You'll come to feel like it. Try it using my God. And try it. Then if it doesn't work, then mention to me. Maybe I'll talk to him about it. But <laughs> more likely you'll find that my God works for you and they actually become your God. And uh, you're welcome to use him. I got to sit down. I'm obviously having trouble quitting this thing and getting down from here, but I'm going to right now. Um, and I have a feeling I want to say uh, I love you all. But I'm reminded of what it used to be like when I first came in and people would say, I love you all. I would think, B.S. You know, yeah. I think you don't even know me. I don't particularly like you, and if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. And, you and yet, I found out that love means wishing another person well. An active concern for another person's welfare. There's not a person in this room that I wouldn't knock myself out trying to help stay sober. And I'm sure there's not a person in this room that wants to see me drunk. So I feel tremendous love for all of you. And I love you all, whether you like it or not. Thank you very much.